Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest this week is Dr. J.R. Muldoon, a chiropractic neurologist and owner of Neurologic Chiropractic Center. JR has earned hundreds of study hours in chiropractic neurology and created a practice that is tailored to meet each patient's needs. Utilizing chiropractic functional neurology, JR strives to always learn, stay humble, and continue to research the latest cutting-edge techniques to improve the quality of life for his patients. Full disclosure, I've been a patient of Dr. Muldoon's for over eight years. In our conversation, we discuss how JR chose to focus on the niche field of neurology within the space of chiropractic, making him a leader within the field and how that translates into better care for his patients. JR also talks about the changes he has seen in his patients, both mentally and physically, due to the impacts of COVID-19. JR is married with three young kids, so we explore the new challenges homeschooling brings to their family dynamics how he and his wife, Christy, work together to support their family while giving each other the space they need. JR explains the multi-year journey that he and Christy have been on to find a counterbalance with their lives. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. JR Muldoon. So today on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, I have Dr. JR Muldoon. And full disclosure, Dr. Muldoon and I are very close. We have a client-patient relationship. JR is a doctor of chiropractic here locally in the Metro Detroit area. His office is located in Wixom. And JR, we are excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. So why don't we start with just giving our audience a little background about you and what you do. Your story is going to resonate a lot with our audience. I really cater to families. So I think our audience should know a, first and foremost, you have three young and growing kids, and two, you have a thriving chiropractic business that's just grown leaps and bounds over the years. So we'll definitely want to touch on both of those subjects as we have our conversation today. But yeah, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you and your practice? My practice has been my own practice for about seven years. I've been practicing chiropractic for about 10. The big thing that separates me from traditional chiropractic is the specialization in functional neurology. And that was a diplomate that I obtained after three years of getting out of school, took another 300 hours doing weekend seminars, big board exam, all these things. And that's really what has made my practice what it is. And the majority of my patient population is dealing with complex chronic cases and things along those lines. A lot of TBIs, movement disorders, stroke rehab. Pretty much I'm number 20 on the list of all the specialists and people finally get to me and that's where things start kind of changing for the most part. But that's really what's built my practice is having that specialty, that niche. There's only about five of us in Michigan. It really divides me from your traditional chiropractic practice. I have, like you were saying, three kids. And so it's been an interesting journey, of course. And you've known me for a long time that 
I was practicing for somebody else as an associate for about three years and decided to start my own practice with a three month old at home. So yeah, we're going to talk balance and everything else along those lines. It was a quick on a whim decision and let's start my own practice while I have a three month old at home and my wife on leave for the whole pregnancy or the delivery of newborn, everything along those lines. And then it was just hit the ground running. Here we are now, seven years later, still in my own practice still building, still growing, still learning, and still always trying to push to grow it, to have new aspects and keep moving forward and not stay stagnant, not stay complacent because the second you're stagnant and complacent, you're not going anywhere. It's funny that you mentioned how you started out because we share that common bond. As you well know, I started Tama the day that my triplets were born when I came back to Michigan from North Carolina. So my first question I want to focus on is, and that's one of the reasons why I think we have the relationship that we do is that, I don't know if the audience knows, but I actually suffer from migraines. And so coming to you over the years, you've been extremely helpful with that aspect of my life. But personally, why did you choose this niche of neurology? Like, how did you even get into that? I'm going to probably get a little bit blasted by traditional chiropractors, but I'm going to be honest. As I was going through chiropractic school, my undergrad was exercise physiology, movement science, anatomies, very medical-based, science-based, things on those lines. And I'd been going to chiropractor since I was five, and I just thought of it as the traditional doctor. Didn't seem like anything abnormal to me. As you kind of get further on in life, you realize like, no, there's a niche of people that go to chiropractors. It's not thought of as an MD. But so anyways, I went to do physical therapy possibly as a profession. And then I ended up doing an internship with a chiropractor, my chiropractor. And I was like, this is where I want to go. So I go into chiropractic school and about halfway through, I'm like, this is a very philosophical profession. And it's nothing against it. We help hundreds, thousands, millions of people. But the philosophy of traditional chiropractic is very much the power that made the body heals the body. We are going to find those subluxation misalignments within the spine. We're going to remove those. And we're going to allow that innate intelligence within the body to heal. Well, with all of my knowledge from undergrad, from what we even learned in chiropractic school, I go, well, why is it though? Like I kept on asking this why, why, why question. Why do I adjust a person's low back and their migraines get better? Why do I adjust a person's neck and their low back gets better? Give me a better explanation than the power that made the body heals the body and just let this happen, right? Because my first counter to it and other philosophical chiropractors can counter me would be, well, if the power made the body heals the body, why do I have to impart any kind of action? The body should just heal. So my clinic doc goes, hey, I can understand the questions you're asking. He goes, go check out the Functional Neurology Club. So I went there and they broke down into clinical testing, things that are in the textbook that you can check to look at function of the brain. And then they go, well, now let's do an adjustment that we know or some sort of therapy that's going to activate that same part of the brain. Let's check our clinical findings again and see if we made a positive impact on the person. Other than I adjusted you and you feel good. There's a lot of things that feel good in life and they're not always the right things. <laughs> a lot of drugs or anything else. It's not necessarily means it's good. So that's when I kind of fell in love with the concept of find parts of the brain that aren't functioning well, find findings that tell you that I'm doing a positive thing or worst case scenario, if I did something and it wasn't positive, I won't want to do that again. Ways to have markers to know other than you just subjectively saying, I feel good or I feel bad or I don't know after an adjustment. So that's how I kind of got led down this path of the functional neurology. And then the icing on the cake was I did a seminar with Dr. Carrick and it was on movement disorders. And Dr. Carrick's the guy that created the profession of functional neurology. He's been doing it about 40 years. 
In this first seminar I did with him, I couldn't understand a word he said. I mean, his clinical knowledge is through the roof. Is this when you were going down to Atlanta for those? So, yeah. So I was actually still in chiropractic school and I enrolled into the neurology diplomate program, which was another three-year program before even getting done with school. So here I'm already nine years deep in school and I just signed up for another three years, basically. (laughs) So yeah, that's why I'd always be going down to Atlanta every month for basically two and a half years on my weekends. Every month I would go and do a seminar for 25 hours. But that first seminar, Dr. Carrick, he basically, there was a person brought in in a wheelchair. They had a thing called dystonia, and that's where you get real muscle spasms. Your head or neck will get pulled back into such a severe spasm. So this person gets brought in a wheelchair. Dr. Carrick does some stuff with his eyes, spins him in the wheelchair, and says, we'll have you walk in six months. And I saw this kid's hand that was like paretic and closed open up in literally 15 seconds of treatment with Dr. Carrick. And then three months later in the follow-up class, this kid was coming in with a walker that was wheelchair bound for two years. So that had me sold as far as like, this is what I want to go into. I want to have this profound effect on people's lives. So that's how I got into the functional neurology realm. And little did I know I'd be going down a pretty deep rabbit hole of continuing knowledge and learning and staying humble and everything along those lines as well with doing that path. Yeah. There's a couple similarities I want to draw on that to what I do on the well planning side is that it's always continuing education. And there's certain requirements. I think I have to do like 20 to 30 hours a year, potentially, depending on my certifications. But it's really, if you really want to challenge yourself, like I know that you do, you go way beyond that. You just don't do it to check the box. You're going deep into things that can really help your patients. And I'm the same way with helping my families on the wealth planning side. I'm getting a lot into college because I know I have a lot of families that are starting to get up the planning piece of college is really going to take over, not the savings piece. One of the things that's interesting about being a chiropractor and being an advisor are some of the stereotypes that we both face that are similar. So like in finance, you have these things called Ponzi schemes, the Bernie Madoffs of the world. Like I tell families, there's always somebody out there that's going to try to separate you from your money. And full disclosure, I'm not one of them. I'm here to help just like you're here to help your clients. But one of the things that even when I tell people, hey, I go to my chiropractor, you should try it. And sometimes I get a weird look or like roll the eyes. How do you deal with those kind of negative stereotypes within chiropractic industry? I personally fall into a little bit of that unique category being the functional neurology. Reason being is I'm so far on the list of people they've already tried. They've already seen the weirdest things, <laughs> you know, prior to getting to me. So I kind of have that benefit that like, majority of the people that come to me, they're like, oh, I've tried the craziest things sometimes that I've even heard too as well. But still, when it comes to that, oh, what, you got to go to the chiropractor for the rest of your life. You often hear that. Or you just neck and back pain. You often hear that. I think you knowing me as well as you have, I'm a very passive person in that concept. You either want to save money, you either want to get financial gains in health, or you don't. Meaning you either want to get better, you want to improve your health, or you don't. So I'm very passive in the sense of if you're here, you're already interested. So do I have to come for the rest of my life? My simple things are, do you have to work out only once and you're good? Do you have to only brush your teeth once? You got to do things to maintain health, just like with your finances. You don't just get to invest once, hit it, gold mine, and call it a day. (laughs) It's a progressive evolution, especially with the times, especially with now. If I would have invested in plexiglass, I'm sure that would have been a good idea. (laughs) So many times it's, 
the person that comes to me is always already invested, but I still kind of say this concept of, well, you got to invest time in the beginning. And I do break that traditional chiropractic mold. You don't have to see me every week for the rest of their life. If you're seeing me every week for the rest of your life, then I'm the same as every chiropractor and you can go to somewhere else and you've came to me for some sort of reason. Just like you probably tell your clients as well that they're with you for a unique reason. So it's the same thing with me. It's like, I'm going to get you to a point where you don't have to see me all the time, where you can come when you need to, or you can maintain with once a month or something along those lines, or you maintain it based on the stress of life and how you're taking care of yourself. Yeah, that does answer my question there. So let's stick on the business still for a few minutes and talk about how COVID has impacted your business. Obviously, you were deemed essential, but you made the decision to basically shut down your office. So walk me through what that was like and then walk us through what the ramp up has been like. Have you seen patients come back? How are patients feeling? That's something I'm really interested in and seeing how people that you're working with that need your help, how they're adapting to this, especially because they couldn't see you for two, three, maybe even four months. As you said, I was deemed essential but our definition of what we could do to practice was life-sustaining care. That's a wide term, in my opinion. What is life-sustaining care? Are you bleeding out? Can I need to stop you from bleeding? What is life in your eyes? Is life that I can't walk down a hall because my vertigo is so bad or my migraines are so bad that I throw up halfway down the hall, but you're still alive sitting in a room. <laughs> it was unique, and I don't think anybody knew what was going on at the beginning. So yeah, I closed for three weeks. And then after three weeks, I was starting to get more calls by uh, patients, a little more contact and everything along those lines where you make a lot of progress. Things are moving forward and it's been halted. And some people were starting to regress. There was two directions. You have regression and then you have some reinforcement to patients as well. And what I mean by reinforcement is some patients, people that really didn't think that they could ever go without me, even though I tell them, hey, you don't need me. You've made change. You are where you are. You might have little bad days, good days, but you're better than where you ever were when you started. So there was a little bit of liberation for people in the sense of like, hey, I'm not falling back to how I used to be. They were given that opportunity without me having in a sense to cut the cord. They can sustain life and they can live their life and they can be quote unquote normal again without me, which was really liberating for them. And they still come back and see me now, but it was really reinforcing for them to not be so scared that if they ever wanted to move or go on a vacation for a couple of weeks, that they cannot do that. So there's that freedom, which was really reinforcing for some patients. And then there was, there's that regression. And then there's psychological aspects, there's financial aspects that played on patients, people losing their job, then they can't afford to come in, which is a real tough thing for both of us. I want everybody to have care. As you know, I'm a cash practice, which also makes it a little more unique too. Yeah, I was gonna note that for the audience is that you made that switch I'll address this question right now, and then I want to come back because I think you have some more to talk about on that response. But you made this switch a few years ago from taking insurance to going cash only. Talk about like why you did that because I thought it was really interesting. And I've heard of more doctor offices, whether it's dental, medical, going that way because maybe I'll just blow your answer up. Because I remember like every time I come and talk to you, you're like, oh my God, I was up to like one o'clock doing billings last night. And it's like, JR, what are you doing? Something's got to change. And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, guess what? <laughs> it's changed. <laughs> yeah, it gets to this point where 
I feel bad where the medical insurance realm is and everything along those lines. The amount of notes that I would have to do in order to fulfill what the insurance wanted, the time was not worth the reward financially. Not that everything's driven financially, but my health, and this is kind of where we're talking prior to recording and we'll kind of piggyback onto this, but my health was starting to suffer when I'm staying up till one, two in the morning, getting up at six to get back in the office because I had to complete the notes because I had to complete the requirements that the insurance wants because they were so hung up on the concept of, hey, has this person's range of motion gone from 50 degrees to now 55? Can you keep taking care of them because you're increasing the range of motion? When really the patient just wants to be able to walk. They don't care about the range of motion. And maybe the range of motion will come, but I want to give the patient what they want. And what they wanted to do was walk. The range of motion isn't the focus. And maybe they don't have much for pain. When you're in with insurance and the insurance is paying you, you have to have these criteria or if they were to ever come back and audit you, they were going to say, we want our money back because you didn't have range of motion increasing. You didn't have pain changing and other things along those lines. And so I wanted to focus more on the patients and I wanted to make sure that I stayed healthy for my patients and avoid burnout. You hear people tell you that burnout term. So many people tell you, oh, you're working too hard. You're going to burn out. And you never believe it. You work hard. And I know I'm a strong person mentally, but I think I definitely danced with that, with how much I was working and keeping up with the notes and the stress of the insurance and everything else along those lines. And when I got rid of insurance, one of the most liberating things that I'd uh, ever done because it let me focus on a patient. It goes, what, you come in, your goal is migraine. And I'm going to go, okay, that's our goal. We're going to focus on the migraine. And the insurance instead would say, no, we want you to focus on how tight the muscles are. We want you to focus on your range of motion, all these other things. And I can pretty much guarantee you that 99% of people that have migraine don't care about the range of motion, the muscle tightness or anything else. If they don't have migraines, they're okay. I don't give a crap about that. I just want- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, and so that was one of the big reasons I'm getting out of it. And then with me also falling a little into my specialty of the neurology, what happens when I spend 45 minutes with a patient and then the insurance company only gives me 50 bucks? When you have that relationship or that date with the insurance company, you have to also admit to their rules. And their rules are, we don't care how long you spent, we're only going to pay you $50. Once again, it takes it off of that patient focus. And a lot of doctors are getting driven to have to meet the requirements, meet the coding of the insurance. And that's why you see a lot of them going to concierge because if a patient needs an hour, we want to give them that hour. Uh, If a patient needs 15 minutes, great. That's it. Yeah, you really kind of get these handcuffs on and how you practice. And that's why you see a lot of people going into the concierge and other things along those lines. And last little note of why I got out of insurance is the prices for what practitioners have often been cut. And this is with inflation, they're cutting prices. (laughs) And so people are making less. And as years go by, when I was uh, with another doctor, he said, I saw a thousand more visits this year and made $15,000 less like this seven years back. And I go, that 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 math doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so that that's where I went into this cash practice. Did you see a big swing when you went from insurance to cash practice? Meaning a (laughs) hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah, totally. But it was on great terms. And what I mean by that is a lot of my patients, I've gotten to a point where they can do well with traditional chiropractic. And I know a lot of good traditional chiropractors. And if they have good insurance and they didn't have some huge deductible, which I think we're playing, I'm probably talking about how people's insurance work, saving all that stuff, deductibles. If you didn't have a huge deductible, let's say you have a $500,000 deductible 
and your insurance pays for things and you can do well with a traditional chiropractor, I help them find a traditional chiropractor. You pay for your health insurance. And that's why I did try to do health insurance for such a long time. It is something that I believe if you got it, use it. And so I probably lost about a third of my patient population as far as like patient numbers and everything along those lines. And I helped them find other chiropractors, everything along those lines. And, and I had no problem with it. I just care about my patient's health. And I don't care if you're getting healthy with somebody else. The only time I care is if somebody else did something better than me. And I want to know what that person did so that I can get that patient better the next time, right? I want to learn from it. So yeah, that was a big swing. But here's the irony of it. I was seeing less patients per week and better off financially in my office and mentally, in my opinion. So as much as losing a third, I still came out about the same number financially at the end of the year, that full year. And my peace of mind and my patients and everything else was better than ever. So coming back to the patients themselves, have you seen a difference in patients over the last three or four months since you've opened back up with how they're feeling and how they're dealing with COVID just in general? Like what's people's mindset? You have this interesting insight into people and there's so many moving pieces today. Not only do you have COVID, you have the elections, you have the Black Lives Matter movement, you have all of these social drivers going on that are affecting people's mindset. And it doesn't matter what side you're on or even if you're in the middle, but it's definitely having an impact on people. Yeah, I can't agree more. In my slight opinion, it seems very split, very black and white almost, and almost politically other things. But without getting into that, what I feel like I'm seeing is I got patients that are very chronic, have had things for the whole life and things on those lines. And you could easily consider them high risk. And I see them saying, I just want to live my life and I don't want to adhere to all that. They're coming in and they just want to focus on themselves and try to eliminate all this garbage that's out there. And then you find another, the other half that's falling right in line, very worried, very concerned about everything going on. And really, I literally almost kind of find that split where it's one half is just really worried. And then the other half is... I'm not worried. It is what it is. Let's move on. That kind of thing. And that's what I've been kind of seeing. Yeah. And I do. And I have patients that wanted to get back in very early. And then I have patients that I haven't seen yet that I know I'll see once this stuff settles down. So it is. It's, I have literally kind of seen that split. And I've actually even got patients where uh, there's what we can kind of refer to as psychogenic aspects, meaning like these things have created other problems in their health because of all this external stuff, winding up their brain, changing how their muscle tone is, their thoughts, the worries and everything else, where it's almost making their chronic problems worse because of all this external stuff that's around them. Because health can comprise the physical, chemical, and emotional aspects. And the emotional stuff is definitely being pushed with a lot of people these days. And people say, well, how can emotion affect my neck pain and stress and all those things? And I often tell people, how's a person's posture look when they get chewed out? Not exactly standing upright, nice and right. tall. Right, you're slumped over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So your emotions tie very deeply into your brain, your body, your health, your cortisol, your immune system, on and on and on and on. So I know that's not the cleanest answer you're probably looking for, but that's kind of the things that I've been seeing. Is it's really been like two spectrums where it's a lot of worry and their health is kind of getting a little bit worse and other things, or it's I just want to keep better and get better and don't worry about it. So I think that's a good segue into the conversation we were having before we hit the record button. I was mentioning how 
Teresa right now is feeling pretty stressed. Obviously, we've got kids going back to school, well, homeschooling anyways. We're fortunate to be in a really great learning pod, but there's still a lot of stress associated with that. Obviously, I kind of talked about challenges within her career and ups and downs of managing this business cycle, if you will, with shutting everything down with COVID and then opening everything back up. And you were starting to talk about how things at home had been with you. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and what's been like for you with three kids and uh, your wife at home? We were talking about it, that big term burnout. I kind of put this whole concept of just put my nose down and grind. I got to provide for my family. I got three kids, all the stereotypical things of life. I need to provide. I need to grow my practice, all these things. And it was about two, three years ago. I'd probably put it about two. My wife and I were having coffee. I kind of just said, you know, I don't feel as mentally as I normally have. And I don't know what or what it is, but I need to find some way to uh, conquer this. And things are going good, too. I couldn't complain. Practice is doing fine. Kids are doing awesome. Everything else on those lines. But I just felt like I was getting pushed. I've never worried about when the weekend. I love when I work. But I was finding myself actually kind of getting like excited, like, oh, it's Thursday. <laughs> never thought like that before. I could work 90 hours seeing patients a week and love it. I could work about 10 hours doing book work and not love that. But <laughs> And so this is where I was kind of segueing. And I told my wife, I got to do something to counterbalance that work relationship. And for me, it was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And as we've talked, I wrestled in college. And I often tell patients this, and I had to take a step back and say, like, you know, practice what you preach, JR. And the reason why I say Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's very kind of wrestling-based. And I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu two, three times a week. And that was that mental edge, that, that out. For some people, meditation, painting. you got to find that counterbalance that takes you away from work and life and gives you relief mentally. And so for me, really a big part of that was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It gave me this balance mentally where I could take my mind from not always doing the grinding of how can I improve on the business? How can I improve on patient care and everything else? So not that I don't care about patients. Obviously, I obsess over what I do, but still, you got to find that out. And what I tell a lot of patients, I ask them, what do you love? Like, what do you miss? And people, oh, I used to play soccer. Why don't you play soccer? Oh, I can't do that. I don't have time for it and everything else. You got to make time because you're going to burn out eventually. You really got to put something aside. Still to this day, I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu three days a week now. And so we're two, three years in and I feel great. And I really contribute to finding that out other than work and family, whether it's you go golfing, you got to find it in my opinion. Yeah. And that's actually one of the struggles that I have personally, Teresa will tell you the same thing. But it's one of the struggles that I see with families when they're trying to figure out the whole wealth management planning concept. And a lot of people find that they don't know and they're just afraid to take that first step. And I find a lot of similarities to what you just said between people taking that first step, whether it's in financial planning or figuring out what enough is or finding what that counterbalance is that you just mentioned. I think what you said, my previous guest, Dr. Laura Hutchinson, who's a child psychologist, you can find that episode on our website at tamacapital.com. But one of the things that she really emphasized during this whole pandemic for parents is parent self-care. Because just like you get on the plane, the whole oxygen mask comes down, whatever, you got to put it on yourself first, or you're not going to be able to be there for your kids. 
Teresa and I talk about that often, but it's a real struggle to find that balance and to make the time. But I think like once you do, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Like when you started getting in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like how did you make that a habit? Because the thing is, is if you can make it a habit, whether it's good or bad, it's going to stick. It's a time management thing. And just like it is, it's so important. I tell so many mothers this. Mothers are the worst at it because they just put everybody ahead of themselves. I go, if you're not well, you're not going to take care of anybody. And then that usually kind of reels it all back and they go, you're right. Like if I'm bad ridden or anything else, I'm not going to be able to even take care of my kids. So we had to balance. And I would say it's probably hasn't been until the past two, three months that we figured out the whole time management. So it was, it was a balancing act of how to get all the appropriate time management. Cause what I was getting at with the mother aspect is I need to give my wife her downtime as well. And one of her passions is she just wants to go read a Bible for 30 minutes to an hour. She goes to a coffee shop and she can sit down and read for a little bit and that's her out. So my Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I do Tuesdays and Thursdays nights, seven to nine. And those same days I go to work 12 to seven. So what I'm getting at is every morning before 12 o'clock before I go to work, I basically, I'm making breakfast with the kids because it's kind of like a flip schedule. Instead of me coming home at five, I do the mornings with that. And my wife, she'll take off for one to two hours every Tuesday and Thursday and the same day that I'm gone at night to give her that balance as well while I'm hanging out with the kids and everything. I have a pretty good lunch. So once a week on a lunch, I typically come home, give her a break. And once a week on lunch, I go and do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So we got this like kind of real nice exchange. She knows I need my time. I know she needs that time. And it keeps us so much stronger mentally, not burned out. She'll often tell me like she's not in a good mood. And then she goes and reads the Bible and everything's hunky-dory. She's got a lot more grace given to the kids and everything along those lines. It helps us stay strong on that front. And it's really been a big thing. And then my last thing I've been doing for a couple of months is I wake up at 4.15 and I do yoga or cardio five days a week at 4.15. And then I do my daily devotional or I do pick up on just notes and everything along those lines. And I've eliminated that staying up till one, two in the morning or anything along those lines. And I kind of just stay on top of that. And I'm able to work for an hour in these early mornings and stay on top of everything, clean up all those emails and everything else. It's been one of the big flips for me as far as that other balance to kind of get that emotional and that exercise and clean up those little things that kind of don't get done. Because you know what it is, when you get home at 5.30 and you have three kids, nothing else is getting done. You're not going to go work out. <laughs> nope. Nope. And that's one of the, so I just want to say this because I think what you just hit on is incredibly beneficial. It's you and your wife have an incredible partnership. And that's what makes these tough situations bearable that you can get through. And it's not without work. Like I'm sure it took you guys time to find that. And that <laughs> Teresa and I are still trying to find that. But you got to keep at it because you're there to kind of like that sweet spot. I could tell in the sound of your voice, that's a really great place to be. And that's where I think a lot of couples, a lot of families want to get to, but it just doesn't happen overnight. It takes work, takes time, takes practice. It took about a year and a half of like just trying to figure out schedules, what she needed, what I need, you know, and all those things. And I think to help me find that sweet spot, and everyone's got to find their own. I'm just giving my examples, was that 415 wake up. Because other words, what would happen is if I stayed up late. Yeah, I late, still don't know how you do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's Pavlock. I'll tell you, it's that zapping alarm clock that I have. Other words, you stay up late and it's hard to get up or you want to sleep in a little bit in the morning and then it's going to encroach in her time being able to go to the coffee shop. It's a little more crowded in the mornings and that eliminated it. 
I remember having conversations with you because we were doing this at the same time together. Like we'd be up till all hours of the night and then you just wake up the next morning and feel like complete garbage. Not a great way to start your day. Going back to what we were talking about before, I was one of those probably concerned patients of yours thinking, yeah, I didn't need to come in the office every week or every two weeks or every three weeks. But usually once a month, I was in there pretty regularly. And that's the one thing I worried about. And I don't know, two, three years, you've been pounding the table on me about, hey, you got to get up and move a lot during the day. And it just so happened that just before the whole COVID thing actually hit, like I was in the process of renovating my home office and getting one of those stand-up desks. So when I look back at like what I changed is I'm standing probably 80 to 90% of the day. And when I get up every morning, not as early as you, I'm doing the elliptical four to five days a week. And now I'm starting planks at night before I do something with the kids or read a book or something like that. So my point is, it kind of ties back to what I said about these habits. Like You can form bad habits and you can form good habits. And a really great book on habits is The Power of Habits by Duhigg is his last name. I'll put it in the show notes. But that's a really great book on how to develop good habits and how to eliminate bad habits. So that's, I think what you're saying is so meaningful and what a lot of people are striving for. I know that Teresa and I are. And that's one of the reasons why it was great to hear, like when we lived in Toledo, that was one of the things that we did together was play tennis. So she signed up to play tennis, cardio tennis a few weeks ago. So every Monday she's doing that, which is great. We still haven't found that consistency that you guys have found yet, but we're working on it. Like you said, it's not perfect. The habits, if they're all easy and everybody could do them, everybody would be perfect. And usually the bad habits are the easy things and the hard ones you got to really work at to obtain and to become consistent with them. Usually whenever something seems all cushy and comfortable, like I almost worry about it now because everything seems pretty good as far as our habits. It's like, what do I got to do to change it? Something's wrong here. (laughs) You know, you get that little bit of worry that things are going too well. But yeah, no, you just always got to keep working at it. Like uh, the 4.30, the 4.15 wake up I have is from Jocko Willicks. And he's a great guy that I follow. He's an ex-Navy SEAL. And he's all about his big thing is discipline equals freedom. Yeah, I could totally get that because that's a lot of what really wealth planning comes down to is it's not being wealthy. It's what you can do with it and the freedom that it brings. And that's something that I've really strived, talked to my family office clients about, especially over the last couple of years and really how to drive my practice going forward where it's, I talk more about the emotional side of finance, if you will, than the actual number side of finance, because people want to separate the emotional from the financial and the financial from the emotional, but it doesn't work that way. I did a webinar last night where I really stressed that and that your spending dictates what you value. And so if you want to change what you value, then your spending will change along with it. That's a really great observation. That's a huge thing real quick. I mean, in my opinion for you, that's such an amazing thing to target that emotional aspect. It is so often overlooked And I think that's probably a big thing, in my opinion, that really differentiates you from others is having that emotional tie into your patient-client relationship because big. That's really the name of, most people know this, the name of my firm, Tama, is it's you take the first letter of Teresa's first name and the kid's first name. And that's really what it's about. And I've really tried to focus on families because that's majority of who I work with. And having the wealth planning, the portfolio management, and the tax services all under one umbrella, so it, it makes it easier for people because I understand the challenges because I have a front row seat to them every day of the multiple 
financial and lifestyle priorities and pressures that people are facing. And my job is to help reduce and manage those through what I do, just like you help your patients through what you do in different ways. But at the end of the day, what we're all trying to get to is some sense of peace of mind. So I did want to ask you, like, how's homeschooling going in your house with, with your, uh, your three kids? Well, it's always a learning experience, of course. It's going really well, though. It was always a goal for me to be able to have a wife that could stay home. And so that's obviously an integral part of why we were able to do it, that my wife is able to stay home and she's not having the stresses of a job to worry about on top of homeschooling somehow. So she can put her focus towards their homeschooling. The reports from my wife is it's going really well <laughs> as far as the homeschooling. There's some learning curves. So we have my youngest is almost two. And then my other guy's five and my daughter's seven. So we got pre-kindergarten and we got first grade. What my wife had to learn is that my two-year-old just needed something to do as well. First day, she just didn't have, here's some crayons and a notebook when the other kids are working on stuff. So we've learned on that front. There's some homeschooling time that's focused around nap time. That helps. Other words, it's been going really great. It's what better time to do it than now if you're going to give it a trial run. We really were worried about putting a kid in front of a screen for six hours. The program that my wife got for my daughter has some faith tied into it, or it's a faith-based homeschooling program. So it's really nice to introduce that into the program. So overall, she's been really happy with it. My kids have been really happy with it. It's pretty interesting that my daughter is actually, when it's all, you put your nose to the grindstone, one and a half to two hours of schoolwork for homeschooling. And she's going to be on par for the first grade. We're kind of like, well, shoot, two hours and then let them be a kid. Let them run outside more. Let them do more imaginative, creative things. We're really looking at it as a blessing in disguise to be able to spend more time with our kids. But all in all, it's going well. I think we're though pretty also fortunate with I got some pretty darn good kids. I'll admit it. They're very well behaved. Luck of the draw, I think. (laughs) Well, I think that comes back to some good parenting on your guys' part. So don't sell yourself short there. So the closing question that I have for everyone is, what is the thing that you love most about being a parent? That's a loaded one. Things I love most about being a parent is that reward that you get when you see them succeed and do things. Let me say this. like there's a new chamber opened up in your heart that you never thought was possible as far as loving. That's one of the most rewarding things that I had no idea that I had such a deep desire and love and care and compassion for your offspring, for your kids. And nothing's more rewarding than caring for them and loving them. But I will say probably one of my favorite things in the whole world is all three of them cuddled up with me and watching a movie. Now, not the best habit, but that's probably one of the most rewarding to like just hold all your kids right there and know that you all love each other. And I think that's just a blessing to be able to have that relationship. Well, I think that's an awesome way to close out our conversation, uh, JR. That's pretty awesome. And, and I agree with the whole cuddling of the kids. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little harder when they get bigger to my kids' size, but I'm grateful that my boys still want to cuddle with Teresa and my two girls still want to cuddle up with dad occasionally. So... Well, JR, I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast today. I think uh, it was a great conversation and we'll look forward to keeping in contact with you and talking to you again soon. Thanks a million, Paul. Appreciate it. Great talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. 
And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.